Burn rate, asset location, inventory turnover, customer acquisition cost, spiffy pop. Each of these represent intermediate-level terms that most serious investors know, and most people who are not serious investors do not know. Well, I'm inviting on three serious investors this week, Motley Fool advisors and analysts all, in order to help teach the rest of us some new terms. Terms like the ones I just let off with. Each of which, by the way, has been covered in the past episodes of this week's recurring series. Some simple, some more advanced, all terms you need to know. Drawn from investing and business. Understanding these terms and the concepts behind them will enable you to become smarter about the game of investing smarter, which in my experience leads to happier and richer over time. Or maybe you already know these terms, in which case, well, we'll have a scoring system you can score yourself this week. It's Volume 5 of Gotta Know the Lingo, welcoming in Bill Barker, Jim Mueller, and Matt Argersinger to teach you and me this week, only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy New Year. It's Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 5. The purpose of this series is to look at some of the terms that you might hear about and not always fully understand from business, accounting, investing, sometimes technology as well. Some new terms for many of us to get you thinking at the top of this year about the language of investing, business, and yes, sometimes life, to get you smarter about these concepts. We're about to do Volume 5. All of our terms, each episode, are new and different. There are no duplicates, which means if you enjoy this week's podcast, we got four past gotta-know-the-lingos that will all sound like yesterday and be of a piece with this one. Free education, a veritable potpourri or glossary of some of the most helpful and relevant financial terms to help you round out your education. This week, I'm going to be welcoming Matt Argersinger, Jim Mueller, and Bill Barker to share three simple terms and then three advanced terms. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you. Happy Thanks, New Year. David. Happy New Year to you. Let me start with you, Matt. I've asked each of you just to remind us in a sentence or so of what you do around the fool. And then part B is a choice. You may either answer the question, what's a New Year's resolution might just be small r that you have for yourself for 2024, or what's a financial term that you wish you'd known prior to adulthood? Matt, we'll start with you. What are you doing around the fool these days? Well, I am an analyst, still an analyst on our premium services. I bounce around a lot, but spend most of my time on our dividend investor and real estate winners services. Wonderful. What's been a recent dividend winner? A recent dividend winner would be uh, Kenview, which is a recent spinoff of Johnson & Johnson and uh, kind of their consumer health business that Johnson & Johnson spun off. Oh. And uh, I think it's got some interesting potential this year. Excellent. And speaking of this year, Matt, do you have a New Year's resolution or a financial term you wished you'd known prior to adulthood? Well, I knew every financial term before I was an adult. Excellent. <laughs> of course. I'm glad you're on this series and also, by the way, <laughs> on our team. Um, no, I'll go, so I'll go with resolution. And uh, I, mine is... Simple, but I, I just I want to go go and spend time more time with people I care about. Uh, and it, it, I read two recent studies this year, uh, and they both said mostly the same thing, which is if you want to live a long and happy life, 
the people that do live long and happy lives tend to spend a lot of time with people they care about and people that care about them. And uh, I feel like I do that with my family, of course, but extended family friends, I'd like to do more of that this year. Matt, is that why you're in the studio today with Jim, Bill, and me? That's why I drove through this rain that we had to get to the studio. It has been in the greater Washington, D.C. area, extremely <laughs> dangerous with just rain and wind. And thank you for making it over, and I trust back. You bet. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that the Framingham Heart Study or the Harvard University-based long-term study, which was written about in most recently in a book called The Good Life, about how our relationships actually matter more than our cholesterol? Yes, it's a snippet from the Harvard study, and then there was another study that, of course, I can't, I'm not remembering now, but essentially that's what they're. That was the crux of that of the result. And last question for you, Matt, before I move on to Jim, this is unfair. Are you going to measure that? Do you have a way of actually knowing at the end of the year that you did spend that time? That is a great idea, David. I didn't have one. I hadn't thought of one. I Now I'm going to think of one. Yeah, although that. it could be a little alarming. You don't want to say thank you for the conversation. Check. Right. Hour and I a half, just, that's a, plus a seven. 10 points. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe don't be that guy. But right. maybe inside, sure. maybe be that guy. I'll keep a spreadsheet. Bill. Yeah, I, so uh, the only idea, I think, maybe, that I've had in my life, which I'm truly proud of, uh, was for my 10th anniversary, I uh, went back to 10 restaurants uh, or other places uh, that had been important in in the sort of courtship between uh, myself and my Uh wife. And I had friends there unannounced. That's great. Meeting us. People that we had already lost more contact with than than we should have. Now we're coming up on our 30th anniversary. Uh, There are not 30 restaurants I can visit (laughs) that are are important or even 30 restaurants that I've been to in the last 20 years probably. Uh, But, you know, you can just go through your phone and see, oh, Mm. oh my goodness. Here here are people that I need to get with this year and I can put 30 groups together maybe – if I keep them small enough, but but this is a uh, well. You know, forgive us, David. If we've, about. If we're already off track with your with your podcast, but I read a book this year uh, also called "Die with Zero by Bill Perkins, and for, I believe it was his forty fifth birthday or his fiftieth birthday. He decided to get together like sixty people, friends, family at a at a destination resort because he said, you know what, I'm 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 getting older. I want to see these people, and he brought them all together. And he, he reflects on that as like one of the greatest moments of his life. For a week, he had all these all these friends from high school, college, you know, family, previous marriages. You know, it was, it was all phenomenal. In place. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Matt and Bill. Did you just preview your New Year's resolution? But let's move on to Jim Mueller. Jim, what are you doing around the fool these days? Well, nowadays I spend a lot of the a lot of my time on the options service, but uh, still keeping my hand in on the energy service, for example. So that's great, yeah. uh, Jim. How about looking back at twenty twenty three? How about a, an awesome options trade? The ones that I I like are the ones where writing puts and the put expires worthless uh, because you were doing it for the, just the income to generate cash flow into the into the portfolio, and so. Um, one that worked out really well was Camping World Holdings, uh, which we wrote puts for for several rounds um, and managed to roll down. Um, as, the, as, the, as the share price fell, we had to lower the strike on the put and ended up expiring worthless and making some nice money. I'm glad and glad for our members who listened to you. And, Jim, I realized I just kind of asked you, you were throwing down some terms. We're not going to be illustrating all of those <laughs> this particular well, I thought of episode. I thought of bringing options into this into this podcast, but I think Fair that, enough. That, that'd be a whole session by itself. Probably so, and perhaps one day. Jim Mueller, what is a New Year's resolution you have for this year or a financial term you wish you'd known before adulthood? 
Well, like Maddie, I was well-educated and smart from the start. <laughs> of course. That's what we hire for. We over-index toward brilliance. <laughs> so during during the pandemic, during lockdown, when uh, we were working from home, I started uh, solving the New York Times crossword puzzles online. And I've got a streak going that's pretty well getting up there. But uh, the Sunday puzzle is the largest and takes the most time. And right now my average is just a hair over 58 minutes for solving that. And I want to get that down below 55 minutes. Wow. That is impressive. And I was going to ask you whether you're timing yourself, but clearly the answer oh, they, is... they do. Yes. They do. They time it anyway. They time it yeah. anyway. Yeah. Jim, sounds like those three minutes could make all the difference. Good luck this year. <laughs> all right. And let's move on to Bill Barker. Bill, what are you doing around the fool these days? Uh, working on uh, firecrackers, a few other services, including hidden gems and a little podcasting, a little... Motley Fool uh, Live, uh, yeah, spreading things around. Wonderful. It's great to have you back in Fooldom, away from that regulated part of our company that we love but can't talk to because there's asset management and other important things happening and something we're proud of at the Fool. We don't talk too much about that on this podcast. But anyway, Bill, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Bill, did you already share your news resolution, specifically 30 restaurants that you'll go back and take your bride back to, again, 30 of them throughout the year or something different? I don't have that kind of money, uh, 30 <laughs> restaurants these days, you know. Uh, but uh, on a related point, yeah, getting people over and um, as part of that, uh, cooking more. Diana's not going to be listening to this, right? I hope so. I, mean, <laughs> I hope so. She'll hold me to that, whereas it's a, it's a resolution. We're going to email it to her. <laughs> which, as you know, may thing. or may not be realized as the year goes by, and I don't want to have myself quoted back to me. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, so that may or may intent. not be an intention. That it's may or may int- not be. It's an intent. We'll see. Let's we'll come back in a year. Okay, an intention, do. not a resolution. We got you. All right. Well, we're about to get started. Let me introduce our scoring system, though. As we introduce each term, the six that we're going to share with you this week and illustrate it for you at the end, I'm going to ask you, dear listener, quietly to think, did I learn anything from these fools? And if you feel like you didn't learn anything and your five minutes or so were wasted by that particular term, the score would be zero because you learned zero and we were zeros and so... Yeah, zero. If, on the other hand, you thought that was helpful, maybe you didn't know the term, or, hey, I knew the term, but they made me laugh. Give yourself a plus one. Finally, if, as Matt Argusinger or Jim Mueller or Bill Barker present their terms with their illustrations, if you find yourself delighted, not just by the quality of the learning, but maybe maybe you got to smile along with it. If you really enjoyed it, give yourself a plus two. And, yeah, you can definitely share your score for this week's episode on social media, or just email us, rbi at fool.com. You know, history will show, by the way, gentlemen, that we used to have a different scoring system, one that I invented that was basically, yeah, test whether you knew these already before we even shared them. But then my producer sidekick, Rick Engdahl, intervened in an historic moment for this podcast and said, hey, shouldn't we reward learning? Isn't it about the learning? And I agreed with you, Rick, and so our slightly lame scoring system was born. All right. Term number one. I'm turning to you, Matt Argusinger. What do you got for us for term number one? Got another lingo. All right. It is cash from operations, uh, David. And I like to think of cash from operations as the cash register of the business. Uh, Bill will appreciate this. Say you're running a comic book shop. And so once I've paid 
you know, the distributor for my book inventory. I paid my employees. I paid the rent on the shop's lease. Um, everything I need to run the business either day to day, month to month. Um, subtract that all from the revenue I make selling comic books, and that's my cash from operations. Um, if I want to get technical with it, you know, cash from operations, it, it t- if you look at it, for example, on the cash flow statement, which you can get from any company, um, well, most companies these days after Enron or WorldCom, I can't remember, have to provide a cash flow statement, so you'll find it. Um, it takes net income, and it adds back certain non-cash expenses, uh, like depreciation, stock-based compensation. It also adds or reduces cash from, things, uh, from changes in working capital. So like when you collect on accounts receivable, when you sell uh, inventory or you, there are changes in accounts payable, and you arrive, doing all that, you arrive how much cash uh, the company generated from its operations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include, now, it doesn't include things like capital expenditures, acquisitions, um, increases or decreases in debt, other long-term liabilities. It doesn't include dividend payments or share repurchases. So those are kind of uh, cash from finances or cash from investments. Those are outside of the operations of running the business. So it's all about the operations. And Matt, why did you feel inspired to bring cash from operations to this episode? Well, two reasons. It has to do with the second term that I'm going to bring to ah, the uh, highest. But, spoiler alert. But I also like, I, I love looking at cash from operations because to me, it tells a, a truer story about a company's earnings. And I love to use the example of Amazon. Um, I think this is, this is fantastic. So if you go back to 2007, so this is more than 15 years ago now, yep. Amazon's net income in 2007 was right around $500 million. But its operating cash flow, its cash from operations, was $1.4 billion. Go five years forward, 2012, Amazon's net income was negative. It was a negative $39 million. It lost money. But its cash from operations was $4.2 billion. Let's go forward another five years. 2017, now, at this point, Amazon's fairly, uh, you know, more mature company. It's fairly profitable. Yeah, people have heard of it by 2017. Of course. By then, its net income is $3 billion. Pretty pretty impressive. Its cash from operations that year, $18.3 billion. And then let's go another five years to 2022, its last full year, calendar year. We we don't have 2023 yet. Net income, it actually lost money in 2022, down $2.7 billion. Cash from operations, $46.7 billion. I've been a long time Amazon shareholder, not nearly as long as David. But uh, I think if you'd followed the company, if you'd followed Amazon for many years, you would have heard many people say, a lot of analysts say, oh, they're not making money. They don't make any money. They're never going to make any money. It's so expensive. Even if they did make money, the PE would be like 1000 Too expensive, not making money. If you'd followed the operating cash flow instead, you would have realized Amazon is, in fact, was, in fact, a very profitable company and is a very profitable company on a cash basis. And that's probably more important than earnings. Excellent, Matt. I've asked you and each of our guests this week to provide an illustrative sentence using your term in a helpful sentence for listeners. Are you ready for that? I am ready. Go. I hope they like it. When it comes to earnings, follow the operating cash flow. It's the best kind of dough. That works. Okay. That works. I mean, there was no requirement to rhyme. Yeah. And yet you did. Thank you, Matt Argusinger. Cash from operations. All right. Let me turn next to Jim Mueller. Jim. Term number two, what do you have for us? The simpler one. I don't know if it's simp. Well, simpler? I, I guess it is simpler. It's uh, macro, at least. Uh, inflation target. Inflation target. Okay. I think some of us can at least guess at that one. I know some of us know that down pat. Uh, and by the way, if you do and don't enjoy what Jim's about to do, give yourself a zero yeah, uh, in our scoring <laughs> system. But Jim, talk to us about inflation target. So inflation is a normal part of the economy. The way the way the economic uh, the economy works, and we know what it is. It's higher prices. Things get more expensive over time. But if you have you ever thought about it and what causes it, 
We actually do. We're, we're the ones who are causing it. As we get better at what we do uh, and or as we move up in our careers, we expect to be paid more. And even if we don't move up, we still get to expect to be paid more because time and service, right? Yeah. As we get paid more, we tend to spend more on goods and services. That increases the demand for those goods and services, which thanks to the law of supply and demand, when demand goes up, supply goes down, and that raises the prices for those goods and services. And so our desire to get paid more leads to inflation. Uh, and of course, because the companies have to increase the prices to handle the higher labor costs and so on, it's a nice little circle. And when it's running well, the economy just hums along. It's when you get too far one direction or the other that, that uh, things ha- start to happen and people get worried. And that's when the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank steps in and that's where the inflation target is. And for them, it's right around 2% per year. And it's been there for a long time and that's almost sort of the timelessly good number. I'm not sure the Fed has always purposed that, but at least these times, it feels like we've arrived at a place in history where 2% is a desirable rate, the inflation target. Yeah, they've had, they've had this a target uh, since about 2012 after the Great Recession, but um, that's, that's what they want to have happen. So too much inflation is bad, as we saw last couple of years. Seven percent, nine percent. Yeah. Now it's back down to three percent. Three percent feels pretty comfortable, especially compared to last year. Uh, but too little is just as bad because that means uh, the economy is not going to be growing. There's uh, uh, too little demand, and so this, uh, the the economy slows down. And what's even worse is deflation. Yeah. Two thousand eight, nine, ten. That was a big danger. Yeah. When the cost for things goes down. And that leads to even a, a harder slowdown on the economy because why would you buy a big ticket item like a washer and dryer if you know it's going to be cheaper three, six months further down the line? Yeah. I mean, it, in some ways, it sounds desirable. And for those of us who save money and invest it, inflation really undermines and erodes the saving right. and investing we're doing, which is why the Fed has been attacking a 7% inflation rate to help all those of us, many listeners included, get the benefit of their savings, not watch that fritter away. But when it goes the other direction, I guess our savings in stocks are more valuable if we have it, but I, it doesn't really create an environment conducive to no. gains in equities either. Right. And that actually turns off people from investing, and that also hurts the economy because it's those, the invested dollars that uh, companies use to grow, grow their, uh, their business. Thank you, Jim. Now, about a quarter of our listeners are not U.S.-based, so you present a Federal Reserve Bank of the United States viewpoint, but have you ever spent any time looking at inflation targets around the world? Should everybody be kind of working toward 2%? Actually, I don't know if um, 2% is the target around the world, but pretty much all the central banks around the world, at least of the, of the larger economies, uh, do have uh, set inflation targets that they're, they're trying to hold, hold to. Jim, are you now prepared to reveal the sentence that will help confirm our knowledge of inflation target? Well, something about this uh, target is exactly that, and so my sentence is uh, along those lines. The Federal Reserve's inflation target is 2%, but actual inflation will always be either higher or lower than that. It will be rare where we have 2%. Yes, and that makes a lot of sense. Anywhere in the very low single digits makes me happy, and I assume... You gentlemen, too, and many people listening to us right now. Thank you, Jim Mueller. Inflation target term number two. Bill Barker. David. You were with me when we did The Last God to Know the Lingo. It was May of last year. Really fun. First time to have you on this series. What term have you baked up as your simpler one to kick off the first half of this week's episode? 
Okay. Uh, it uh, follows on some of the discussion about inflation, uh, and it is a very simple term, and it won't take long to explain, but it may be uh, worth talking about, and that's the misery index. More of a macroeconomic term than an investing term, but it works alongside a lot of investment talk. Uh, the misery index is very simply, in its most basic form, uh, just the raw inflation rate plus the unemployment rate. And at the time that it first gained currency, uh, toward the, the end of the Jimmy Carter presidency, it had a lot of traction in terms of this being a number that described what was making people miserable, uh, as both the in, uh, inflation and unemployment rates were quite a bit higher than, than today. There are more advanced metrics uh, that have uh, added a couple terms. Sometimes you double the unemployment rate because uh, studies show that unemployment uh, leads to much more misery than than inflation. Makes sense. Uh, also, the lending rate uh, is a higher lending rate increases misery, uh, and then you can subtract the GDP growth. If you double the unemployment plus uh, inflation plus lending or mortgage rates, and then you subtract GDP, because if all those numbers are high, but GDP is growing very fast, that's you know a, a trade-off. That's, a, that's another way to look at it. Of course, it describes sort of what the, Fed, the Fed's dual mandate is, employment and, and inflation being two things they are keeping an eye on uh, and, uh, and are charged with uh, being aware of the interrelation of the two. Uh, so, it's not a number that gets talked about all the time, although the components definitely are always heard the phrase out about. there. Yeah, and it is you know potentially something that you know every election revolves around those components, and when they come up with headline numbers, the, the misery index is not very high right now. I mean, three percent inflation, three percent unemployment, six percent or so. Do I have that right? Yeah, a little. You know, when you get into higher? the decimal points, yeah, and okay. unemployment's like three point six, three point seven. Right, so and, maybe you know seven. Yeah, uh, so a little under that on monthly basis uh, right now, and that's uh, lower than at the beginning of the this presidency. Of course, there there were very different uh, circumstances going on uh, at at the time. I mean, there was higher unemployment and no inflation at the time. But I remember even higher unemployment than that uh, a couple of years ago. Americans seem to be staying mainly engaged, but some jobs had to have been lost when we were all sitting there Zooming each other. Uh, yeah. Well, the unemployment rate went uh, skyrocketed and came down quickly, but it, it took years to get all the all the way back to the sort of pre-pandemic. Yeah, when you close all the restaurants, all the hotels, the airports and everything, there was a lot of unemployment. It's actually stark to think how how quickly we've come back from that. Did, did anybody take economics in college? I did. I took were, a course or two. Were, were you given a number what the full employment rate was? 5%? It was 6% in yeah. the course that I took. In in the early 80s, right. it was, hey, if you, if you run hotter than 6% unemployment, you, you can't do it without inflation. And that that was just the, the understanding uh, at that the time. That was the book. Yeah, that was the book. And on the inflation side, I thought the long-term inflation rate was always at 3 3.5% as well. And this is, the, you know, the 100-year inflation rate for the United States ending in 2022 or thereabouts is 3.26%. What are we complaining about? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's that, that was another question I had for you, Bill. I did a, a Motley Fool Money podcast just recently where – 
we talked about the term vibe session. So we're not in an actual recession and we're not really miserable in terms of the historic misery index, but there's this vibe session. In other words, people just don't feel good about things. And I'm wondering why why you think that is. Two reasons, I guess. One would be there is, uh, you know, an effort by let's call it roughly half the the electorate, uh, to convince people that they are unhappy with the, their elected representatives right now. And you can always pull some numbers out to uh, you know tell that story. And if you just keep telling it over and over and over, and I don't know that either party is especially um, you know guilty of this more than it the other. It tends to flip and flop yeah. over the years. Whoever's in is going to be criticized by whoever's out. Yeah, you're 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 unhappy. And the other uh, reason may be that, okay, inflation having been seven eight percent for some period of time, it's down to three, but the prices aren't going down. You know, if you were used to paying a dollar for coffee or whatever, as if coffee could have ever been acquired for a dollar. I can't, <laughs> can't remember that back that far. You know, it goes up to a dollar twenty and that, and now it's only going up at two, three percent a year instead of, you know, it it's it's set at a new level that you're unhappy about. That's You've the, been unhappy. And that's the misconception. People think yeah. well they hear the, in the news inflation's moderating or going down. They think, oh great, inflation or prices are going to go back to 2019. They're just going up less. That's right. Yeah. It's that's like right. wasn't Toy Story flying as Falling with style. <laughs> Jim <laughs> right, Mueller. With, right. With, um, yeah, people expecting the prices to go back down to what they were beforehand, is, it's not going to happen, right? No, but you can make, but, you can make it, a political campaign out of exactly. If, if I were around, we would get those prices back down to, you know. Yeah, and uh, you're, you'd be creating deflation, which is worse for the economy, as we were just discussing. So, that is true. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, it, it's going to take a while for us to get used to these new prices and – um, Fortunately, they're moderating in terms of their rise, and that's yeah. been very helpful. The stock market saw that last year in anticipation of that happening more. This year, I think it had a great 2023. And, and apparently, despite the fact that the unemployment number is more important to people's misery or lack thereof, we, as a, as a society, seem to have gotten used to the idea that uh, unemployment should be at historically low number, <laughs> just absurdly low number. As I, as I say, I was taught you can't maintain uh, unemployment below 6% without ruining the other part of the economy. Yeah. And and we've spent, you know, Well, I was taught that years. the stock market is just a random walk down Wall Street and <laughs> it would only be monkeys throwing darts blindly that could ever beat the market. So I disagree with a lot of what we were taught in school. Bill Barker, do you have a sentence to close this one? I mean, I don't have a catchy one. I didn't. I didn't work on my rhyming scheme. Oh, come the, on, way, the way some people here prepared for this, <laughs> I would just say <laughs> the misery index is not a perfect predictor of elections, but it's uh, pretty useful in knowing what the uh, election is going to sound like. All right, and to close that one out, thank you, Bill. Do you favor the simplest version of the Misery Index or some of the others where you're doubling things or adding or subtracting additional stuff? Do, Do you have your gold standard for Misery Index reference? I mean, I think the gold standard is the simpler one. It tells you a story which should provoke questions about yeah. the things you're not seeing in the number, uh, but the other number is not as well known. It doesn't track it to the extent that people follow it. Uh, they follow, you know, the misery index, the original. And thank you for that. So we're at the halfway point of this week's podcast. We've just gone through the three simpler terms. A reminder. 
for each of them. Did you learn nothing at all from us? Because you already knew it and it was a waste of your time. Give that one or all three of them. I hope not. Zeros. If you enjoyed it and learned something, give any of those a plus one. And if you were delighted and find yourself smarter, happier, and richer as a consequence of the first half of the show, give that a plus two. Sum those numbers up, and that is your halftime score. There are no halftime follies. We're going to continue right in to the second half of this podcast. Gentlemen, each of you is bringing a little bit more advanced term. And Matt, we're going to turn it back to you. You may have already presaged the term that you're going to be bringing as term number four. Could you repeat it now? Sure. It, uh, my simpler term was cash from operations. This term, which is very similar, is funds from operations. Now, if you're looking, if you're analyzing stocks or looking at, you know, an uh, income statement for a, a company you might that might be in your portfolio, you're probably not going to see this line item unless you're looking at a real estate investment trust. So this is where these, the these That's terms. why I didn't really recognize it. By the way, people often assume, well, Dave must know everything because he's the host of this podcast and he's picked stocks for years. No, I don't know some of these. Um, I didn't take a lot of economics courses. They were kind of boring and very Keynesian at my school. So I avoided some of this. And I rarely have come across funds from operations. But Matt, that's because I've rarely looked at REITs. By contrast, you have often looked at REITs. Right. It's In real estate winners, it's, it's about 90% of our scorecard in that service are REITs. Mm. And, and you you need to understand funds from operations for one really big important reason. Real estate gets depreciated over time. Uh, in fact, uh, according to the IRS rules, I believe, residential real estate uh, is generally depreciated over 27 and a half years. Commercial real estate is generally depreciated over 39 years. Hmm. Um, this is what the IRS assumes is the useful life of any property. Uh, now, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I, I thought my house appreciated in value over time, Matt. Well, there you go, very David. So I, I, I own a house in D.C. that's over 150 years old. It's still standing. Uh, in fact, there are people living in it today. It's a rental property. And I think, David, you own a house in D.C. as well that I'm sure is over 30 years old. It is not, actually, Matt. It's, <laughs> oh. It was built in 1999, although ah. there was a house that preexisted, the one that we're living in, right on that same property. So, yeah. The okay, property. so you've had – so, according to the IRS, you should have depreciated your house by over, for over 25 years. So, according to the IRS, your house should be worth 90% less than whatever it was wow. built or paid for in 1999. Now, I don't think that's true. I sure hope not. I will say that <laughs> of the few houses that I've owned, and I've loved each one – I don't really feel like I've ever made money on real estate. Like I, t- I think I get excited, overpay for the house, but love living there usually for 10 or so years. But then 10 or so years later, when I sell the house, it's like not that much more than I paid for it, even though we're in a big, growing urban area. So I don't think I'm a very good real estate investor, Matt, which is why I'm glad you're my friend. Right. Well, so real estate, so the point being real estate tends to hold on to its value, even appreciate Heck yeah. And so, uh, so you kind of, even though you're by income statement rules, you're supposed to subtract depreciation from your, your uh, income statement. It's, it's something you probably want to account for if you're looking at a REIT. So the funds from operations, essentially the big change that you're doing is you're taking that income and adding back depreciation. There are also some other one-time expenses that can be often be added back, some other non-cash charges, but de- depreciation is really the big one. And what you'll find is it gives you a much better measure of a REIT's cash flow. Matt, looking at the relatively specialized area of real estate investment trusts, again, something available to all individual investors. Many of our listeners are going to have some REITs in their portfolio, but not everybody grows up studying REITs or uses that acronym necessarily that glibly. 
How important is funds from operations to you? Is there any additional savvy or ratio you want to throw our way? Is the point kind of the same as Amazon, making way more money than you think? Bring it home for us. That's exactly right, David. So, if you're really thinking about, again, the cash register of a business, the cash register of a real estate company, funds from operations is, is what you want to use. And we often get a, a, a lot of questions in real estate winners. A, a, we'll recommend a REIT. And the member will say, well, now this REIT, I, I don't understand, Matt, this REIT's trading for 40 times earnings. That's you, you said in the recommendation, it's kind of a bargain, but 40 times earnings. I mean, Apple's trading for 25 times earnings. Alphabet's 20 times earnings. You, you're telling me you're, you want me to pay 40 times earnings for a REIT? And the point being, funds from operation gives you a nice way to say, well, actually, if you use FFO, funds from operations per share, instead mm-hmm. of EPS per share, you can come up with a, a price to FFO. And maybe the price of FFOs, I'm making this up, 10 or 15, and that's that's a relatively good value. So it's a way also of measuring kind of the overall value of, of a real estate investment trust. And I think it's pretty useful in that in that way. Matt, does that um, does that concept tie into the fact that a REIT has to pay out most of its earnings to to its fund holders? And so uh, earnings isn't as important, but uh, and, but the cash that is paid out comes from the fund, f- uh, the FFO. No, yeah, it's a gr- it's a great point, Jim. So what you often see, because as you, as you rightly point out, REITs have to pay out almost all of their pre-tax earnings out as dividends. Um, so often you'll t- you'll see an earnings payout ratio for a REIT that's well over hundred percent. Now, if you saw that for a normal company, you'd say, well, that's that's a problem. That dividend's in trouble. But if you use FFO instead, you often see. It might have a 70% FFO payout ratio. And so you can say, okay, that dividend is well covered by the, the REIT's FFO, even though it's not covered by the taxable net earnings uh, of, the, of the REIT. Matt, I'm going to try out a name on you. This is an author, a leading light within this specialized industry. When I say the name Ralph Block, does that mean anything to you? It absolutely does. He Did wrote, you? yes, I mean, Ralph Block probably wrote the primer on investing in REITs. In fact, his book is called Investing in REITs. And I know he was a former full contributor, or at least on our community boards for That's many That's why years. I was thinking about him. You know, Ralph died in 2016. God rest his soul. Very good man. He was there in the Motley Fool forums and discussion boards for more than a decade, just humbly and expertly answering people's questions about real estate investment trusts. And I really appreciate, I just want to say, if anybody connected to Ralph Block is listening, we really appreciate Ralph. We miss him. And Matt, I'm not surprised that you knew the name Ralph Block, but I'm guessing most listeners wouldn't have known that name. Right. When I, I hey, I've read his, I read Ralph Block's book twice. It sits near you know my desk because I'm using it often as a reference tool when we're writing about REITs or talking about them. And so, uh, I'm so glad he made that great contribution to our community. Fantastic, Matt. Do you have a sentence? I don't know. Is it a poem again? <laughs> It is, David. I couldn't help myself. I think this one will go a little bit better maybe than than my first one. Just as nerdy, though. Okay, so right here goes. You go. When it comes to analyzing real estate earnings, don't be the dunce from Wobegon Station. Make sure to use funds from operations. Wow, that was pretty elegant. Jim, I I feel like you were almost emotionally moved. Am I right? (laughs) No, I'm just... Ashamed that I didn't come up with any rhymes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, he's ashamed to be sitting next to me, shaking his head. I can't believe this guy. That's what he's saying. <laughs> I, I had a question. So, the number for the depreci- depreciation of uh, household is uh, 27.5 years. Is that more or less? That's right, 27 and a half years. I, now, that's that's residential real estate investment property. So, you wouldn't obviously you don't depreciate your own house. No, but I'm, I'm thinking about whether that is a accurate reflection of how quickly my house does depreciate. That is, if if I were not cleaning it, you know, charging for the time of cleaning it or paying somebody else to clean it and just not 
painting it, replacing not, appliances, re- replacing appliances, right? A lot faster. Replacing the than roof. Twenty-seven and a half years. Let me tell you. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be <laughs> overgrown <laughs> much, much faster than that. Uh, but at about three, four percent a year of, of replacement cost for roof and appliances and paint and and flooring and um, everything else. Yeah, it's a great point, Bill. And, and I think what you're getting at, rightfully, is that even though we we love adding back depreciation saying, oh, we got this great funds from operations cash flow venture. The fact is REITs have to also invest a lot of capbacks back into the properties to maintain them, grow them, make them better for newer existing or new tenants. And so, you know, it, it is something that it is a good proxy, I think, for what actual the amount of capbacks that actually has to go in over 27 and a half years or 39 years for commercial real estate. Um, so I think, it, you know, it's not it's, it's a rightful deduction, even though we adjust for it for cash flow purposes. But as as a homeowner, I have never not been surprised by something breaking and having to be replaced. Or it it never it never I think we fails all can to surprise relate. me. I, what every year? I, I when I bought this house, I was told the roof would be gone in fifteen years, and it's been fifteen years, and you're telling me it has to be replaced. That makes no sense because <laughs> it's coming out of my pocket, and I get nothing except a roof. <laughs> All right, funds from operations. I'll be summarizing our terms at the end of this week's show to make sure you have them all firm in your minds. Remember our scoring system, zero plus one plus two. Jim Mueller, you don't have a zero for us for your advanced term, do you? I hope not. I hope not, too. What is term number five on this week's Got Another Lingo? Well, zero would actually make it a very odd term. Um, Discount rate is Hmm. the term. And it's something we're familiar with, but only in one direction. And discount rate is that same thing running backwards. And I'll, I'll explain that. So the classical definition of the value of a business is the sum of all the cash the business can produce over its lifetime discounted, there's the, the word, mm-hmm. back to the present and an appropriate rate. And the question is, why do you have to discount it? And what is discounting? Well, the point of any business is to generate cash, right? I mean, if you're not going to make generate more cash than it than you use to create and market whatever you sell, then why do it? At least, at least if you're a, a for-profit business. Yeah. That excess cash flow is what any company should be after, right? So suppose a company generates $1,000 extra every year, and it pays out to you, to you its owner, that, that amount. Okay, so you get $1,000 today, and next year you'll get another $1,000, and the year after that you'll get another $1,000. The question is, is the $1,000 a year from now worth the same as $1,000 to you today? I'm going to answer, no, it's not, because we already talked about inflation. Well, that, that, that's part of it, too, but this comes at it from a different direction. And the answer is no, as you said, but not because of inflation, but it's because you can invest that $1,000 today. That's actually have, much more important, Jim. And have more money in the future. Okay, So say you're, you put it in a savings account that's paying you 5%, which is not as outrageous as it was just a couple of years ago. But five percent makes the math easy. In a year, it's going to be worth a thousand fifty. Okay, so a thousand today has a higher value in the future. So going in forward in time, from now into the future, that's your return rate, five percent. Discount rate is the inverse, the upside down version of that. You're going backward in time from the future back to the present. So if you had a thousand dollars and discounted it back today at five percent, it's only worth nine hundred fifty-two dollars. Because you can take that $952, invest it at 5%, and end up with $1,000 in the future. So 1000 today ends up as 1050 1000 in the future 
coming back to today ends up as 952. So mathematically going forward, we multiply the amount of money by one plus the interest rate or one plus the return rate, doing that multiplication once every year. So at 5%, thousand goes to 1050, then to 1102 and change, then 1157 and change after three years and so on. Compounding. Compounding. Okay. So that's the return rate. But going the other direction from the future back to today, instead of multiplying, you divide by one plus the discount rate. So at 5%, 1,000 a year from now is only worth 952 and change. 1,000 two years from now, discounted twice at 5% each year, is worth $907. 1,000 three years from now, going three years discounted mm-hmm. at 5%, is worth, call it $864. And so the, the further out in time the company generates that cash flow, the less that, that cash flow is worth today, which means that the, say the company lasts 20 years generating $1,000 each year, it's not worth $20,000, it's worth $13,000. We've discounted it using a discount rate. We've discounted it back using a discount rate. The question is, what's the discount rate to use? And that's an entirely different topic, which we'll get to maybe on another episode. Thank you for that explanation, Jim. We said this was going to be more advanced. You threw some math at us, and no doubt some of our listeners followed the math, but I hope everybody understood the concept because that's really at the heart of discount rate. And the fact is that money generated by our favorite business, either The Motley Fool, the one we all work for, or our favorite stock pick, 10 years from now is not worth as much to us looking backwards to today because we can't use it. We can't do anything with it. And there is a little bit of nickeling and diming with inflation as well. Which leads me to the inevitable question, Jim, would you go ahead and use that phrase in a sentence, probably non-rhyming? <laughs> Definitely not rhyming. Yeah, Matt set the bar too high. Uh, okay, so if, you're, if you expect a certain return rate going forward to grow your money, that is the discount rate to use to find the present value of those future dollars generated by the business in today's money. Now, Jim, a lot of people, especially so-called value investors, think a lot about this and use this very actively. They've got spreadsheets that uh, express it out to an extra decimal or two, and it helps them value the stocks. Is that something? Is that a practice that's part of your arsenal as an investor or not? And I think you know about me. I don't really do that. I know you don't really do that. I do that uh, depending on the company. I'll, I'll either build a full model, uh, but I, I like to keep my models fairly simple. Uh, but yes, I do certainly do think about the discount rate. And the one I use is is a hurdle. I want a certain return on my stock investments. And I want to beat the S&P 500. The S&P 500 has a long-term return rate of about 10%, 10, 11%. And then if you put your money in an S&P 500 index, you'll get about 10% over a year for many, 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 many years. If I'm going to go to the trouble of finding out my own investments, I want to get a little bit better than that. So I often use a discount rate of 12%. Remember, discount rate uh, or expected return rate just as, just as a matter of which direction in time you're looking. And so it's the same thing. Thank you. Jim, perhaps we'll have you on next time to do discount rate. That would be what the central bank charges commercial banks to loan money to it, which is another oh, version of that same phrase. <laughs> and, uh, but thank you for discount rate this way, this time, which I think is a little bit more relevant to investors. All right. For our final term this week, we turn back to Bill Barker. Bill, what do you have for us? Term number six. My term, and it's a little more complicated than my first term, but it's not supposed as to complicated be. As, as Jim's, uh, is the compounded annual growth rate, or CAGR. 
and uh, it's just the mean annual growth rate of an investment over a specific time period of longer than a year. So if you are looking at something which as a stock or as an economy or as a top line sales growth rate, whatever it is, it goes up quite a bit in one year, down a little bit the next year, then up a normal amount, up a normal amount, up a lot. You take the time period and you take the final time period, divide it by the beginning time period. Yeah. You know, take it to the one over t power. We're doing some math here again. You know, I want to get this as uh, try to get up as complicated as Jim's, but I'm never going to come close. (laughs) It's really the inverse of of the discount rate is you know you're compounding numbers rather than discounting them, Mm -hmm. uh, and and doing that uh, you know to a certain power, uh, however many years you're studying. So. And to follow up on Jim's comment of the 10 or 11% annual returns to the market, in 1994, Jeremy Siegel. Stocks for the long run. Stocks for the long run, published for the first time. There have been a few additional uh, additions, showed in his book uh, in 1994 that the return in real terms for stocks, as measured by the SP 500, uh, was about 6.5 to 7% annually. And that's after real terms, meaning once you've subtracted inflation. So if you're talking about the hundred-year returns of stocks, they're a little bit, little bit over ten percent. But that's including three, three plus mm-hmm. uh, percent inflation. And since he published the book, uh, that's continued to be the compounded annual returns hmm. of stocks. And it's a little bit higher as if you measure from 1994 in January. I think it was published around January. It's been thirty years. Yeah, by the way, the Motley Fool debuted online in 1994, so you're allowed to have a 1994-centric forward view. You have one, Bill. Well, and it's been good. And and see, I mean, Siegel's great accomplishment was to come up with the research uh, for the time periods prior to his publication, and and you know, predict more or less this is what one should expect to happen going forward and out of time period it's been the same it's mm. been a little bit higher if you end the clock right now but if you'd ended it at yeah. the end of you know year and a half ago it would have been a little bit less but it's but about, about the 7. same 2, and it's about 30 7. years late okay 30, good 30 so so he kind of had it on he had gold in there too right gold's compound oh, annual he, growth rate yeah, yeah. He, he had, had gold he had cash yeah. he had bonds gold not so yeah. good i can't remember something if, close to zero if i think gold in real terms had compounded at all oh, right i think it was even it, even was, negative i mean yeah. i think it was yeah. and yet gold gets about as much commercial time maybe oh. not quite as much on CNBC, you know, the the gold schemes and the people who are like, we got to get gold now. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. It that, seems like when know. there's a rash of bad news and, <laughs> and you know, you, 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 you tend to get a lot of gold commercials. I guess they, they're, they're almost timed for that for that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of. And we're to continue this term in a sec. But if listeners take nothing else away from this week's podcast, but maybe don't watch or listen to the gold commercials on CNBC. <laughs> Have we done our work? I, I think, think, Bill, you may have done your work. Somebody Give us a score of two. Just, just go and <laughs> study Jeremy Siegel's uh, research on that and uh, see whether it's uh, maintained its value since 1994 on, the, on what gold has done. But cash, gold, bonds, stocks have uh, basically kept their order. And I think it's just remarkable. that So he wrote that in 94, and of course we had – you know, an epic stock market crash in 2000, 2001, 2002. I mean, NASDAQ. Sure. Happen. And then not six or seven years later, had another massive crash in 2008 with the financial yep. crisis. And yet those two 
really sharp, unbelievable corrections. Or I don't like the word correction, but you know, uh, declines in the stock market. Yet that long-term rate of return has remained intact. Yeah, and he he also came in. Uh, you know, he would be called in. 2000, when the stock market was at at highs, and you know what what's going to happen going forward, and he lowered his number, but given the height of the stock market at the times, you know about four and a half to five and a half percent, and and that turned out to be right for about the next 10, yeah. 15 years. So, There's so a- you have to lower your expectations at times uh, when the market has has had exceptional returns from what your future returns can be. Uh, that's just math, but you know he was still projecting real returns over over the long term. Yeah, so that that chart where he sh- where he lays out the fifty or sixty or eighty or a hundred years—I I, I can't remember the time frame—but it's a lo- it's decades long of those returns and how a growth of a thousand dollars of any one of those commodity uh, items would from gold to cash to bonds gold, to cash, stocks. Bonds, yeah, the the. Stocks just crushes everything else, and uh, it's it's counterintuitive to many people because stocks are riskier, right? What goes up must come down, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when gravity is in play, sure. <laughs> but it's it's uh, what Warren Buffett talks about is the don't bet against the American economy, right? Uh, when econ- when the economy is growing, companies do well; they grow. And become more valuable over time, while gold just sits there looking yellow. So, yeah, and then the important word in in this particular term uh, is compounding. Right. Compound annual growth rate. Uh, the annual growth rate of the economy, is, you know, two three percent in real terms. Throw a little inflation on there. You throw a little bit of dividends. You know, that's where you get your returns from the market. Margins have improved over time, uh, but each one of those things is just adding one or two percent, uh, and and all together, that translates into you know real returns six seven percent. And the thing that I guess would I would ask you know uh, David, you uh, travel in in the rule breaker world where an compounded annual growth rate of six percent probably doesn't sound. All that interesting um, for many of the companies that that you're looking at in their in their youth, and of course the compounded annual growth rate of a successful company when it is small should be much much higher than that. And as a company matures, the the annual growth rate almost has to come down. Although large tech American unless tech stocks have sort of uh, been <laughs> unless your name is Apple or something. <laughs> I, I mean that's the. the Amazing thing, not just about Apple, but uh, Google and, and Microsoft again, uh, and, and being of a size that previously could not compound at, at anything approaching double-digit rates in real terms, uh, has been achieved by several companies. Well, we certainly love companies that have done that. I call a lot of those rule breakers, as I think you guys know. And Yes, I've always been on the hunt for those. I do admire and love, though, just a good rate of return over a long period of time. Um, Part of what happens with that 6% rate, or even if it's blended higher, 10% or 12%, let's say, for companies that are at earlier stages with hyper growth, uh, is that you lose a lot, too. And so part of that blended rate of return that compounds includes a lot of losses and negatives. And I've done a lot of those myself as a stock picker over time. Anybody who follows a rule breaker mentality is going to have losers too. So you have to remember those all blend in. You have to be willing to accept those losers as part of getting that higher CAGR, that higher compound annual 
growth rate. Bill Barker, thank you for that term, which just about to close out this week's episode, except, Bill, you need an illustrative sentence. And if you could use all of the phrase compound annual growth rate, I mean, I like acronyms, and it's a little it's a little awkward. Kager, like, I... I Make it rhyme. Make it rhyme. I, I, yeah. See, I yeah. was thinking Ow, about it and how... What would rhyme? And I think rager is is about as close as, as I came up so with, you know, in the middle. But I don't have a good sentence for a kager and rager. You give me another few minutes, I might come up with well, something. Well, we're not going to do that, but you do owe our listeners an illustrative sentence, so just use what you had. Compound annual growth rate is a term often misapplied as the eighth wonder of the universe to Albert Einstein. yes. And so Einstein did twelfth say that. No, I don't think he actually said that, or wasn't the first one to say it, or anyway. It's people, on bumper stickers. Be, be, it's in be, TED Talks. <laughs> it's 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 an amazing, powerful force, uh, and uh, I think he said something like it, but he wasn't the first. Well, thank you again to our guests this week: Matt Argersinger, Jim Mueller, and Bill Barker. You know, just for the fun of it, how long has each of you been in and around Fooldom in years? I'm just curious, Matt. Gosh, well, if you go back to the discussion board days, it's, yeah. gosh, it's going on 20 years now. But as a fool, 16. 16. Jim. As a uh, paid fool coming up on 18, as a customer, you can add a couple more years to that. I'll just go with the 18. That's awesome. Bill. 26 as, as an employee and a few years on the message boards. If you date it to my first post of the day back on the message back boards, the I think day. I won that a couple of times. Uh, 96. Wow. Well, if I did my math right, that's 66 combined years of foolishness. One thing that my brother Tom and I take some small pride in as entrepreneurs is that we can find wonderful people like this, and they stay with us, and we stay together for years and years. I want to thank each of you for your foolish service, and that includes this week's podcast where we introduce these six terms. I hope you know them all now. Whether you gave us a zero, a one, or a two, that's your own business, dear listener. Would always love to hear your scores if you want to post it. Here they are again. Cash from operations, inflation target, misery index, funds from operations, discount rate, and compound annual growth rate. Well, we hope your results, listeners, spoke for themselves. Again, whether it was a zero, one, or two for each of our terms, We had a lot of fun bringing that to you this week. Thank you again to Matt, Jim, and Bill. And a reminder, next week, I'm going to bring back a few of my most important points made over the years. It's a blast from the past podcast for Rule Breaker Investing, where I bring back important points you may never have heard, or or maybe you heard and forgot, ones that speak well to the here and now, and I hope inspire you. In the meantime, full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.